hello, folks. You're uh, with the Bard MBA in Sustainability on Sustainable Business Fridays, and we are honored today to be talking with Al Ianazi from uh, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, so, Al, back over to you. Yes, I was just describing the uh, beginnings of EarthWords, our greener product uh, development approach. I was given a little history. Um, so back in the late 90s, I sort of needed to start a design for the environment program at Johnson & Johnson, and I uh, pitched it to our, our management in the uh, EHS area, and it was accepted, and I was able to roll out uh, a, a global design for the environment program. Um, and that had some uh, success to a degree, but I realized back in 2008 timeframe that we needed to have a little bit more um, focus on greener product development. And we, being a marketing company, needed to make design for the environment more uh, attractive, let's say, to uh, internally and also externally. At that time, there was a lot more uh, green marketing going on where uh, companies were speaking about the greener attributes of our products. And we really didn't have a good mechanism to communicate uh, what we were doing as a company. Uh, so I had the idea of having what I would call a branded program, which is EarthWords. So uh, we actually hired a uh, third party to help us develop EarthWords, uh, a consulting firm, and even uh, we used a green marketing firm to help us to name the program as well. And we benchmarked other companies, um, looked at what best practices were, saw what our customers were looking for, and we came up with the EarthWords approach. And you know, just for, so everybody understands what EarthWords is all about, EarthWords is a, uh, a four-step process in which we use to make our products more sustainable or greener. So that's a little bit on the background of EarthWords. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that I think that that's a, a, an interesting program to 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 hear about the development and see what you're doing with product stewardship. Um, it, it seems like a very formal process for innovation, so I was just wondering kind of how that process works, what are the steps, and also how has it successfully engaged employees in creating a more sustainable business? Yeah, so... Um it is a four-step process, and, and the way that it goes is, uh, first of all, we, we require all of our new products and packages to go through the EarthWords approach. It's actually embedded in our EHS standards. So all major corporations have uh, standards that they require all their business units to follow, and they audit against those standards. So we've incorporated EarthWords into our product stewardship standard. Um, which all of our business units must follow. So step one and step two are required by all business units. And step one is uh, doing a risk assessment and regulatory assessment against your product. So seeing if, are there any um, uh, risks out there with the raw materials you might be using, is there any uh, pressures on specific ingredients, um, whether it's from sourcing of raw materials or if there's any campaigns going on there by NGOs. Uh, we want to do that and review that. Matter of fact, we have something called a watch list where we require our uh, product developers to evaluate um, to be more aware of the type of materials they're putting in the products and trying to focus on uh, the most uh, sustainable ingredients we, we could put into a product. Uh, the, 
that's the risk assessment part of it. Then there's the regulatory compliance part of it, which is in step one. So there's a lot of product stewardship, what I would call product stewardship regulations out there, where it's looking at um, having companies uh, paying more attention to the materials that go in their products, the end of life of their products, that type of um, focus. So some examples of those regulations would be REACH, which is a, a European regulation that has to do with uh, registration and um, authorization and restriction of chemicals, or uh, ROHAS, which is a restriction of hazardous substances um, rule in the European Union, or packaging directives. There's various packaging directives around the world, you know, requiring you to minimize packaging, make packaging more recyclable. So we have to do all that in step one. Step two has to do with understanding the life cycle impacts of a product. So what we've realized over time is that when we look at life cycle assessments of, of, of products, that we um, would be able to make greater environmental improvements um, beyond our, our factory line. So typically, I've been in the environmental field for over 30 years, um, you know, our focus has been on the manufacturing facility, reducing impacts on a manufacturing facility. That's been the traditional focus, but we've learned that through life cycle thinking that you could make your emissions at a manufacturing facility down to zero and still, you know, not even put a, a small dent in the environmental footprint of that product. I'll give you a quick example. Um, any, any product that requires the use of hot water, let's say laundry detergent, you generate lots of greenhouse gases just as a result of the use of, um, of the hot water in, in the washing of clothes. Um, so if you focused on your somehow reducing those emissions, like what um, Procter & Gamble had did, uh, they developed a cold water laundry detergent. If we are able to get your customers to switch to that, you can have dramatic impact reductions uh, for, your, for your product. And even if you made all of your emissions zero at your factory, it wouldn't even, uh, you know, it would pale in what you could do. If you think about all the different people using laundry detergent out there and greenhouse gases generated from hot water. That's just one example of how life cycle thinking is important. So we have that as a second, secondary part, understanding the hot spots of your product. So we make consumer products we make medical devices, we make pharmaceuticals. The hotspots or life cycle hotspots of, of those different uh, product categories are different from uh, category to category. For example, if you look at a medical device that's uh, used once and disposed of, the, the end of life of that device is gonna be one of the biggest impact areas. Whereas if you take a, um, a product, let's say like a, um, a leave-on uh, cream, a lotion, you know, the impacts would be higher in like the material sourcing area. So you'd want to focus your improvements in those areas, which takes me to step three. Step three, so step one and step two are required. Step three is uh, where we want our product developers and our marketing teams to to uh, un use the hotspots to under understand how to make their products more sustainable. So we have seven categories in which you can make your product more sustainable or greener. Those categories are uh, our materials, packaging, uh, energy, waste, water, social impacts, and innovation. So you can improve your product across any of those dimensions, but we look for three sustainable improvements uh, when it comes to earthwards. Um, so we, if you can make three sustainable improvements for, on your product compared to a previous version of, of, the, of that product, 
then you can uh, fill out our scorecard and you could receive EarthWords recognition, which takes us to step four. So you complete the scorecard, which covers all the three steps, documenting the improvements, and then it goes before the EarthWords board, which I lead. And the EarthWords board includes uh, experts within the company and also NGO experts and third parties, such as we have a professor from um, Cornell University on our board. We have someone from World Wildlife Fund and someone from an NGO that deals with uh, healthcare uh, called Practice Green Health. They help us to validate that these improvements were indeed uh, performed. And then that product is considered EarthWords recognized. It goes into our EarthWords uh, catalog, which we then generate scientifically based claims that we could bring to our customers. So it is quite a, um, a, a detailed process, as you could see. And the two benefits of EarthWords is one, the development of more sustainable products, and two, claims or green marketing claims that you could use in, uh, with your customers um, to you know, show how your product has been improved. So it was kind of long, but uh, that's what EarthWords is all about. Well, that's really interesting because, um, hi, Al, this is Rochelle. On the one hand, one of the biggest issues with green marketing is green washing. So it's excellent that you have an appropriate assurance system in place that can really validate those claims. Um, in your opinion, would you say that, you know, in terms of environmental self-regulation of large corporations, what do you think are the main drivers? Uh, you talked about, you know, just compliance and, and fines, liabilities, reputational risk as well. But um, are there other things that play a role? So you're talking about, Rochelle, just in general, the drivers to do environmental programs, or you're talking like the focus on products? Um, well, for your products, yeah. So for EarthWords, for example, you know, what, were the, what was the main impetus within the company for doing something like that? Yeah, so, well, the big picture really has to do with our credo. So Johnson & Johnson, we have this credo that we pay a lot of attention to. It was developed in the late 40s, and it's very forward-thinking. So that's the basis for it. it. It really says that part of the credo says that we are responsible to the communities in which we live and work and to the world community, and we're to be good corporate citizens. So that's the basis that anything that we do regarding sustainability is our credo. But there's also a lot of other forces out there. So in the book that I wrote called Greener Products, I actually de dedicate my first chapter to the, the you know, case for greener products. Why, why should we be focusing on these things? So we mentioned already, the reg I, I mentioned a couple of regulations, so there's regulatory drivers, but uh, to me the biggest driver are market forces. So when our largest customer in the world, Walmart, starts asking for greener products, it just gives guys like me so much more uh, firepower to encourage our company to develop more greener products. And it's not just um, Walmart, but our hospital-based customers are looking for, for greener products, and um, other re retailers are, are looking for greener products, too. So it cuts across all three of our business segments. As I mentioned, we have consumer, medical devices, and pharmaceuticals. So when there's a market forces and we start seeing our customers asking for greener products, well, it becomes, uh, you know, not just a compliance issue. It actually becomes a competitive advantage issue, or it could be a competitive disadvantage if you if you ignore it. So that's really the impetus for focusing on uh, product greening programs such as EarthWords. Mm -hmm. Hope that answers your question, Rochelle. Yes, definitely. 
Um, and I was wondering if you could go back a bit to the credo. You know, many companies have values. Uh, I think it was Enron, Arthur Anderson, and um, one other that all had integrity as a main value, and we saw what happened to them. So how do you think your credo is so successfully integrated into a company where it does play such a large role in its sustainability success? Yeah, that's a great question uh, because if you go to any Johnson & Johnson facility around the world, you'll see the credo hanging up on a wall. But how is it just not just a bunch of words on a piece of paper, like you mentioned some of those companies that didn't have the best um, outcomes? Um, it's really got to be part of the culture of a company. And, you know, culture is, is really critical. Um, and the way that it, it is ingrained in our culture is that the credo is always spoken about by our CEO. You always hear Alex Gorski mentioning the credo. Um, mm-hmm. It's mentioned regularly, you know, in, in business meetings. You know, it's one of the first things. But I would say probably one of the most important ways for it to be integrated into our culture is that we do something called credo surveys. So every Johnson & Johnson employee around the world, about 120,000 of them, is polled um, every year on how are we doing regarding the credo. And there, it's very detailed. As a matter of fact, I'm the credo champion for our environment, health, safety, and sustainability team, which I, um, I'm part of the leadership team for that. Uh, um, and we get results back, and based on how you do compared to the, the norms of the company, uh, wherever you're not scoring as well in all the various categories for the credo, you have to put improvement plans in place. So there's, uh, it's a requirement for management to pay attention to this, and it's a requirement for us to, to look at this. Top management is always evaluating your credo scores and seeing how you're doing as, uh, as leaders. and we use it as managers to try to determine uh, how our uh, em- all the employees in our organization are thinking about what we're doing, you know, regarding leadership and how we what we need to do to change. And it just forces um, discussions that if it was just a document that you know nobody really paid much attention to, it could just be words on a on a piece of paper, as I mentioned earlier. So that's really just some examples of um, of how it is part of, woven into our culture, but there's many other, you know, app examples I can give you on, on how it shapes the way that we make decisions and it shapes the way that we do things. Excellent. And it sounds like that survey is not only a survey that you do every once in a while, but the results are then reviewed and then integrated back into future strategy of the company. And that uh, sounds like it's a very dynamic process. Yep. Um, I was also wondering if you could go back. So you talked about compliance um, standards, such as REACH, uh, Rojas, et cetera. What about self-regulatory or um, international standards like ISO 1401 and uh, things like that? Does that play a role in the operations, or um, is it more secondary? It's interesting you use the term self-regulation, too, so not to um, say too much about this, but I, I... when I um, got my PhD in um, environmental policy, that's actually what I studied was self-regulation. Actually, I had my dissertation published as a book, and it's all about self-regulation. So uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting that you use that term. I never had anybody actually ask me that question before in a forum like this. But um, I'm a big believer in uh, self-regulation of companies. As a matter of fact, I would, it, you're hard-pressed to find any major company who doesn't have 
a internal auditing program in the the area which I'm involved in, which is environment, health, safety, and sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, when it comes to ISO 14001, that's another one where I'm a, I'm a big supporter of that. So at Johnson & Johnson, we require all of our sites, all of our major manufacturing and R&D sites to be ISO 14001 certified. And that requires uh, reviews. So uh, once every three years, there's a certification audit that occurs. And we've actually combined that with our governance process, our internal governance process, which we require every facility to be audited approximately once every three years. Um, and then uh, every year, there's uh, abbreviated assessment that, that occurs. So that's a real key um, to, I think, our success on, on keeping things going. Um, just knowing that you're going to have an assessment, you know, our human nature is like to pay attention to things that you, that you know you're going to be reviewed upon. And if, if there were no assessments occurring, you know, no doubt in my mind, things would, would lax, would become more lax. So having something like a 14,001 assessment, knowing that it's going to come and knowing that there will be a review, it just keeps you sharper and, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's helped us to improve our performance in, in EHS. Mm, excellent. Al, uh, you mentioned your most recent book, Greener Products, The Making and Marketing Sustainable Brands. Um, mm -hmm. I'd just be interested to hear a little bit more about how you work with Johnson & Johnson's marketing team and what you think the you know, most key aspects of, of a successful green marketing campaign are. Yeah, so that's, that's very good. Um, so marketing is the key. <laughs> it's the key to um, success in, in many companies, but especially in, in our company. Matter of fact, we were just having a discussion with someone yesterday about about this specific topic. So in my book, um, Greener Products, Making a Marketing of uh, Sustainable Brands, I, I wrote the book because I, I thought that it was really important to um, not only talk about the design elements of how to make a product greener, but also the marketing elements. Because I, I have this saying whenever I do presentations on this topic, I say, you know, there's no such thing as a green product because every product's got a footprint and you could reduce the impacts of that product. So I call products greener, and I also say, what good is a greener product if nobody knows about it? That's where the communications or marketing aspect of it comes in. So um, here at Johnson & Johnson, um, if we can get marketing to ask for uh, greener products, it will happen. <laughs> if, they see, if they see that this will give them um, a advantage in a the marketplace, they'll start asking for it. So um, that is, is so, so critical. So uh, a key component to EarthWords is the communication aspect of it. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's two, two um, objectives. One is to make greener or more sustainable products. The second is to communicate the more sustainable attributes of our product. And that's where marketing comes in. So whenever we have an EarthWords recognized product, and we just had a board meeting recently, we had two products that were EarthWords recognized, we develop a... Uh, like a, I would call it a fact sheet. It's like a PowerPoint slide that describes what the improvements were to this product. And then it has to get what we call copy cleared, and it goes through like um, legal review and marketing review so that any of the claims that come out of it can be used with our customers. And, and the other thing that we do is we measure 
the amount, the percent of um, products that are earthwards recognized that are using claims with their with customers, and that's a pretty important um, internal metric for us, so that we could see that it's making business value. Because it's it's great to, to recognize products that have made improvements and employees feel good about that internally, but when it, your customers are, are able to see that and it, it has a, an opportunity to give you an edge in the marketplace, that's where you know real business value occurs. So that's how we work together with marketing. Great. Yeah, that's very interesting to to get a sense of how how you know making greener products is important. But if we're not if we're not talking about them, if we're not marketing them, if we're not communicating internally about them, we can kind of lose out on. On, on selling that as a benefit. Um, moving away from Johnson & Johnson for a second and more towards your experience in the environment, health, and safety field, uh, you've been a player in this field for, for 30 years. Um, you know, wh- where do you see it 30 years from now? Where do you see the field headed? Where do you see Johnson & Johnson headed? Um, just your picture of, of the future of the sustainability movement in environmental health and safety. Yeah, so I see more, <laughs> more of where, you know, the whole framework that has been um, set. Matter of fact, I was at a meeting yesterday where I was saying what we, one of the things we focus on is innovation. Earthwards, we have an innovation section of it. Um, and we were talking about uh, putting metrics around having innovation sessions, Earthwards innovation sessions. Um, with our with our business units as one of our main objectives for 2015, and I I made the statement that yeah we we feel like we need to have this metric and we need to focus on this be, because you know if fast forward 20 years from now we would ex- I would be expecting that this is just commonplace that the R and D marketing people are just thinking about this when they make products so. That's from a J and J perspective. I just see more, and, and, and I think across the board, more of a focus on sustainability. I can tell you a good, real good indicator is during the recession that this, that seems like never-ending recession that that we've been in. Um, there was still a big focus on sustainability, you know, and a lot of times in the past when there's been you know hard economic times. EHS issues have dropped, you know, off the radar screen or haven't been as important. But the people nowadays are more and more concerned about um, buying products that are are better for them, you know, from a safety and, and health perspective, and also buying from companies that are responsible. So regardless of the economic times, that seems to be something that's a steady. So, you know, 30 years from now, I just see more of where, where we're at. I see companies paying even more attention to this and, and people continuing to, to minimize their footprint. But in actuality, another one of the drivers for greener products that, that I, I mentioned this in my, in my book in the first chapter is what I would call um, moving into a resource-constrained uh, world in the future. So if you really take a big picture look at, at the world and how uh, population is growing, right, and where it's growing. So major companies like ours, we're putting our focus in, in growth on, in the emerging market, right, looking at China and India, uh, Russia, Brazil, those those countries, the BRIC countries we call them. And um, if, you, if you look, just take China and just take India, for example, um, their, their middle class is growing rapidly, and they're getting more uh, income available to use on, on purchasing 
products that, that you and I are using on a daily basis. You know, they want smartphones, they want televisions, they want cars, you know, and they didn't have that in the past, and they're going to be looking for that. Um, so where are all those resources going to come from? And, you know, are there enough resources to provide all those products? So that's where I use, you know, where I say, like, we got to do things differently when it comes to making products. We have to be smarter. We have to use less materials to get to the same end state of uh, the service that people are looking for. So I just see, you know, regardless of, of what your feelings are or your, your mm-hmm. understanding of um, – where resources will be in the future. One thing I think we all can agree on is that there's going to be a greater demand on materials. And at a minimum, it's going to drive the cost up of those things. And, you know, personally, I think that they're just going to be really tough and it's going to be uh, need more innovative ways to, to extract materials out of the environment, more recycling, more circular economy type of thinking that's going to be required. So all of those forces, you know, coming together are just going to, going to require people such as those on the phone, you know, to be working on these issues and coming up with innovative solutions from a, from a product standpoint. So I just see more of, of that uh, in the future. Hi, folks. So you're, um, you're on uh, Sustainable Business Fridays uh, with the BART MBA Sustainability, and we're talking with um, Al Yunazi, uh, who is uh, uh, a director at uh, uh, Environmental Health and Safety and Sustainability at Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and if you would like to join the conversation and ask a question, you can hit five star on your phone. Um, so that would be the way to get involved in the conversation. Five star will get you in. Um, I've got a couple of questions I wanted to jump in with here, uh, Al, and in particular, um, this emphasis on, on sort of innovation versus kind of after the fact, uh, kind of incremental change. It seems like the Earthworks program, because you're really dealing with existing products, is really looking for, uh, you know, not sort of bottom-up design questions, you know, radically redesigning products, but rather how can they be improved on the margin. Um, I'm sure Johnson Johnson has a more fundamental kind of research uh, process that's involved in really kind of rethinking things from the ground up, and I'm wondering biomimicry, green chemistry, you know, how is that playing into the work you're doing? And then I'll just throw another question here on the marketing side is that, you know, it's sort of, I guess, conventional wisdom in the consumer goods space that consumers uh, will choose green all else equal. Um, And I, I assume that's sort of a fundamental principle here is that you can't really expect much of a price premium for green products in your space these days. So two questions for you. Yeah, those are all great questions. Um, So let me tackle the innovation question first. Um, So all of our business units have innovation processes, and we're, we're, you know, it's something that we talk about. We want our company to be known as an innovative company. Uh, so uh, we do have um, part of Earthwards. Uh, we actually just rebranded it. We used to call it Echo Innovation Sessions that, that uh, people on my team will help um, to facilitate and help people to look at ways to make their product greener. And some of that, some of those ideas could be pretty, pretty innovative and you know pretty um, uh, game changing, right? Uh, so it's not just incremental. Um, we do use Earthwards uh, to 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 document it and to uh, to try to spur that thinking. 
Um, so um, innovation, we came up with a suite of tools to help product developers and marketing people to think about how to uh, make their products more sustainable using those seven earthwards categories. And, um, and, and within some of these innovation sessions, you can, you can really think out of the box. So anytime you get people together uh, and you let them, they will. Um, so that's, that's a very important part of it. And you mentioned um, green chemistry. So that is a real um, important focus area. It's something that we, we definitely pay attention to. It's probably the most important to our pharmaceutical unit because you may or may not be aware of this, but when you bring a pharmaceutical, active pharmaceutical ingredient to market, like if you look at your box of Tylenol and you see acetaminophen, you know, the, that's what I mean by active ingredient. The new compounds that come out, they're much more sophisticated. The chemistry is, is batched typically, so there's a lot of reactors and there's a lot of energy and water and waste and solvents that are used in manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. So there's great opportunities to reduce environmental impacts using green chemistry and to reduce costs and cycle time, which is who doesn't want to do that? So green chemistry is a big focus area, but it, it is used in, in all three of our business segments, uh, but especially in our pharmaceutical area. So it's embedded in, in Earthwards. So Earthwards is our approach, and, and it, it's like a banner, you could think of it. And anything on how we can make our products greener is, is under that, and it includes green chemistry, and it includes, you know, use of more sustainable packaging, and it, it includes um, removal of um, materials that might be uh, being pressured and just a whole host of things that there's a lot of processes that go into it. Um, could, could you give an example of sort of what, you, I mean, uh, where you'd say that, you know, there's a really innovative approach that, you know, radically reduce something or other through this sort of process? Well, um, I'm not going to say that the process has actually generated some radical stuff, but, uh, you know, I've yeah. been in on in innovation sessions where some radical ideas came up, right? Well, I guess you could say mm -hmm. process. They, some of those ideas are in people's heads before you get into the process, too. So, you know, we yeah. talk about, like, um, shampoo, right? And remember I, I mentioned earlier in the call about um, use of um, – Cold, cold water. So, you know, how do we yeah. prevent that and with with um, shampoo? And can you even come up with a way to clean your hair without using shampoo, you know, for example? So that, those are like some crazy ideas that come up sometimes. And sometimes they're not so crazy, and you can you can actually put things into, into practice. Uh, the whole idea of servicizing, right? So when we sell medical products, um, you know, do we really have to make profit just by selling a, a specific device, can we be selling like a procedure and, and enabling a surgeon to be able to do a procedure um, and make it easier for them to do that using less materials too on top of it so there's reduced environmental impact. So there's a couple quick examples of, of innovation. But I can't really say of any Earthwards recognized product right now that I can think of that you know, is, uh, was like so radical that it was like, you know, game, a huge game changer. <laughs> Yeah, I know we have some other, some in the works that I can't talk about, which is really um, some pretty interesting um, stuff that that's going to be pretty pretty radical um, once it comes to mar market. Huge em environmental reduction and huge uh, patient benefits. Those type of things. Wonderful. Uh, 2015. 
Um, yeah, it, it should be, uh, from what I heard, it should be hitting in 2015, but I haven't gotten any read on it recently. You know, sometimes when you when you have uh, products coming, you know, there's always some other curveballs that get thrown in, in the way. Sure. But, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting it to hopefully hit in 2015. Okay, so that, that quick you marketing also question. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the whole marketing, the cost. I'd like, to, I'd like to address that real quick of a greener product. So what, when we look at data, and when I'm talking about retail consumers, so like you and I go into you know, Walmart or we go into Walgreens or someplace like that to buy something, you know, are we going to buy, a, are we going to be look for a greener product? So the research that I've seen over the years is that when you poll people and you ask them, would you, would you, are you interested in purchasing greener products, however you want to, you know, identify? Everybody says yes. But then when it comes to the point of purchase, that if it costs more, they don't do it. <laughs> People don't do that. And what I'd say is that greener products should be an end. And what I mean by that is that any product that you develop, it should, has to be obviously efficacious. It's got to be um, also greener. And you can't ask for a higher price for it. It's got to meet the, the same price point as, as you know, a non, one that isn't as green or, or as sustainable. That's across the board, I, I, you know, from what I could see. I mean, when we talk to our healthcare customers, you know, hospitals, they want greener products, but they don't want to spend more for it. You talk to the average consumer, they would love, you know, who wouldn't want to have something that they felt better about, you know, like, hey, this company's uh, supporting these issues and they're actually paying attention to their footprint or reducing it and the product's, you know, greener and I can recycle the packaging easily, et cetera, et cetera. And it costs the same as the other the product I was using. So, I've, you know, I'll, I'll buy that one product. But if i got to pay, you know, 10 20% more for it, you know, you hesitate to do that. That seems to be what's been going on. Other than what we would call dark green consumers, they'll, they'll pay, you know, a premium no matter what. They're usually wealthier, you know, uh, customers and they're, you know, there's, this is so, such a part of their lifestyle that they will spend more for a greener product. Great. Simon, we'll show back to you. Great. Well, these are all, I think, for as a you know, sustainability MBA student, so encouraging to hear that uh, people like you are in companies like Johnson Johnson making really um, substantial changes and innovations for the future. Speaking of that, you know, do you have any recommendations to MBA, MS graduates looking to pursue a career in environmental and health safety? Um, you know, if you were hiring a replacement, what skills and experience would you look for? Yeah, I always get asked that question <laughs> when I'm <laughs> speaking uh, in front of um, groups like yours. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, you know, to be expected, right? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Why would you get a degree? Token. You can't get a job, right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> first of all, I admire you know students such as yourself, and, and I you know I really love to um, to talk to and to share whatever knowledge I can with with people such as your you because you're interested in you know usually when you pursue degrees in this you're interested in making a difference in the world and seeing things done better and you know reducing impacts and doing things for social good that's part of your DNA and that's an awesome thing and you know that's to be applauded so um, as far as you know what would we look for um, well you know we're looking for you know the education is one thing right but the experience and what I would call soft skills are another thing. 
um, emotional intelligence type of things. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to soft skills. So experiences, you know, um, like a lot of people say they want to get a job in sustainability and they'll, they'll get a degree in um, a master's degree, let's say, in, in, in sustainability, and they'll expect to be able to go right into a company with a job in sustainability. But to be honest with you, there are not a lot of jobs that just to have the title sustainability in it in companies. Um, sometimes you have to get in the company, you know, in uh, another way. Let's say some of you are marketing people. Well, you get a marketing job, and then you, you could take your brand. And of course, you want to get in with a company that will be open to be able to do this, but you, know, you take your brand and you start, you know, uh, finding out who is working on sustainability within your company, and then you start, you know, partnering with them. And over time, you know, you can, you know, work your way into a sustainability job, or you could just, you know, deploy sustainability thinking to your, to your role. You know, um, mm -hmm. same thing goes for if you're an R&D, you know, scientist, you know, the same type of thing. Um, you can get in the company through your traditional means and then try to get into sustainability over time, find out who the people are, start reaching out to them. Most companies are, um, are open to uh, people who want to do more. So you have your job, whatever it is, right? And then, you, you know, you're, gonna, you're still, you know, executing on your job requirements, but then you say, you know, I want to try to get into the sustainability field, then you could, you know, start doing some stretch assignments and getting, you know, approval for that, reaching out to people in that area and trying to connect with them. And then over time, you can kind of weave your way into um, the sustainability field. So I guess the, the big picture is, you know, you, you, you may get, you may be fortunate enough to get a job right from the get-go that, that's a sustainability job, but don't be discouraged if you can't find one that, that it's not the end. <laughs> you can get in, you know, through other means and work your way into those type of um, roles over time. And uh, most companies will allow you to do these stretch assignments and, and projects and even, you know, uh, they're looking for people who think differently and are innovative and can come up with, um, you know, using sustainability as a lens, a way of, of making your function, whatever your job function is, better and uh, bringing more value to the company. Um, well, let me just talk a little bit about soft skills, too, if I could. So sure. this is always a tough thing. You, it's a hard to tease out when you have a interview, right, with someone. I mean, because somebody could be the greatest inter interview in the world, but then when they're working for you, <laughs> you know, different story. So I, you know, I, I like um, I favor internships. So I don't know if, you know, it depends on where you are and, your, and, and, you know, what your obligations are, you know, to make an income. But, um, you know, internships is a great way to get into companies. I'm a huge supporter of that. Um, it's a good way for you to, you know, figure out this is what I want to do and for the company to see, you know, wow, this person is a really great individual. I want them, I'm going to find a job for this person, you know, or the next job that opens, I'm, I'm putting them in that role. So that's another another way, too, that you can position yourself. And, and then also I would just encourage you to come up with, like, a target target company or target organizations and who are those organizations you would really want to work for. Reach out to individuals in the sustainability group in those companies through LinkedIn, for example, or other networking opportunities just to try to start discussions, helping them to see who you are and, and that they can understand your, um, your, your desires. And really, when it, when it comes to the, these uh, emotional intelligence, you know, just really try, seeing if you understand who you are and how you need to operate within a company and being able to function on a team, those are key characteristics that I look for when it comes to hiring new people. Excellent. That makes sense. <coughs> um, and then, you know, 
Simon touched on the fact that you've been in EHMS for, for quite a while and, you know, a lot of the things you're talking about sound, sound very exciting and, and personally, what are you most excited about to see happen in the next 10, 15 years in this field and then the, in the broader sustainability field? Yeah, well, I'm also a big believer in that we all have our own, you know, everybody's got kind of your own DNA and you're all um, gravitate to certain certain things. You know, we ha all have our own um, expertise, you know, our niche, you know, as, as individuals, things that you really love to do. Like whenever I talk to people who are talking about jobs, I say, well, what do you love to do, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, because you, if you're going to be working, you want to do something that you really love to do. And it's great that you can, I can do this, in, you know, in sustainability. And actually, um, I look forward to going to work every day. You know, I have for over 30 years looked forward to going to work. I just really, you know, love the whole idea. I mean, I started out in the environmental uh, area. And, um, you know, it's something that I just have inside of me. It's part of my, my DNA, and it's something that I'm just excited about doing. Um, and I'm very blessed to be able to be working at a company that, that you know, allows me to do what I'm doing and, you know, to uh, be able to make a good living uh, doing that too. So, you know, any I just get excited about um, – I really love the product and the things and the whole EHS function. I mean, there's so many other elements of it, but especially when it comes to product stewardship and making products greener um, and just reducing impacts and be able to add business value through sustainability programs and initiatives, that's really cool and exciting to me because in the past year, you know, I have been in the field a long time, right? Um, it was more of a, uh, I would say, a pushed in a pull, you know, you're, you're kind of like saying, well, we really should be doing these things because it's the right thing to do, or, you know, maybe this is going to come down the pike. But when you can actually show management that this makes a difference in, in so many dimensions, you know, it makes a difference in how the company uh, performs. You know, you can reduce costs through sustainability initiatives. You can um, make the environment better from a work perspective and be a more attractive work environment. People want to work for companies who are paying attention to these issues. So there's, there's benefits uh, from there. It can help you when it comes to your uh, public uh, perception. You know, from a public affairs perspective, your company is looked at as a higher performing company, a more innovative company when you pay attention to these things. So just so many, you know, wins in it now. So that makes it even more exciting. And, and, you know, awesome to be uh, part of, of a sustainability movement, you know, within a company. Definitely. Could I jump in with a question here? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, Johnson Johnson as a private company, uh, you know, obviously may face less quarterly pressure. Um, and, you know, you just mentioned this idea that you're now in a position where you can really and executives are, are more open to the you making the business case for these initiatives. Um, so when you t hey, when you talk with colleagues who are in public companies, do you find that they're uh, uh, under more pressure to sort of demonstrate an immediate ROI, um, or is it you know do you get a sense that that's not that big a uh, an issue uh, for folks who are kind of in the space that you're working in? Well, first of all, Johnson & Johnson is a publicly traded company, so... Um, oh, I'm not, sorry. I'm, I, I, that was my mistake. Yeah, but it, it, you okay. know what? You probably confuse this with SC Johnson. <laughs> a lot of people do that. They're, they're a private company, actually. They're very... Oh, okay. Okay. That is an old company like ours. I mean, we've been around for over okay. 120-something years, so, so have they. Okay. 
it's easy to easy to make that. So, uh, but we are publicly traded, um, okay. And so we get those pressures too. So it's kind of um, um, you know an interesting uh, way of, of doing things. But again, it goes back to our our credo. Like the way our credo is set up, it really enables us to be able to to do these things. It, it basically says our first responsibility is to our customers, uh, to the moms and dads, the, the doctors and nurses who use our, our products, right? Our second responsibility is to our employees, that they'll have a safe work environment, will be treated fairly. And it goes on to say that we should be good corporate citizens protecting the environment and the natural resources we're privileged to, to use. And then in the end, if we do these things, says that our shareholders will see a, a good rate of return. So it's all, you know, connected, and we've found that to be true. Now, I'm not going to tell you that we don't, you know, that Wall Street pressures are, are not affecting us. They do. You know, if the share price is down, you know, people will get concerned, and they'll put pressure on the CEO and the management team to, to do something. But um, maybe not as much as most companies. Regardless, ROI is important. So um, I think, I mean, you can't say that all programs have an ROI because there's certain initiatives that you'll do regardless, even if they cost you some money. But um, I'll give you an example. Our energy programs, we've had great success in, in, in green power. I mean, we've got like over, I think, 30 solar photovoltaic installations around the world and over 50 megawatts of green power that we generate on our, on our sites. And what we've what we've done with energy efficiency and green power projects is that uh, we only allow major projects that have an ROI that meets the, our normal ROI for projects. As a matter of fact, um, we have a $50 million fund, I'm sorry, $40, $40 million annual fund that for capital relief for green power and energy efficiency projects. But in order for you to get that money, so every, every, for example, every business is given so much capital to improve their business every year, they can get above and beyond that capital to put green power or energy efficiency projects in, but it's, that project's got to meet the same ROI as any other capital project within the company. So you, know, you never are going to just do stuff just for purely um, you know, sustainability reasons. Um, I mean, there might be some of that going on, and I'm, I'm sure I can think of a, probably a couple examples if I go back in my career, but a lot of these programs, they, they have to make business sense because um, then they become a hard sell and it's just, you know, you know, you're just doing it for the sake of doing it or maybe it's part of your philanthropy program. So that's... Um, that's well, this is actually more interesting. So really what you're saying is that the public company structure of Johnson Johnson has not fundamentally undermined the its original credo or mission. So it really has been able to sustain a, a mission that I guess literally puts shareholders forth in, in line in terms of responsibility, uh, which is uh, not what you typically see, um, you know, or hear about in terms of the pressures that you face in public companies. Yeah. And it, it sounds like it has something to do with a, the ability to somehow sustain the culture uh, and transmit that culture sort of intergenerationally. Yeah. It's, it hasn't been a barrier for us to do things, um, but, you know, you, you have to be, um, you know, have to speak the business language. You have to make the business case when it, whenever it comes to any of these um, sustainability or EHS issues. 
Interesting. Uh, Would you like to speak just a little bit about your book, uh, your most recent book, and kind of, I mean, you've talked indirectly about it, but what would you say is kind of the, you know, the big takeaway from from your work looking, pairing this idea of product green, product development, and marketing? Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, so, you know, my book, um, and you could go to my website, www.greenerproducts.co, not C-O-M, but C-O, and you can, you know, see a little bit more about it. I have a sample chapter in there, um, and you also can, you know, purchase it. But you can purchase the book from any Amazon or wherever. But the, I, I wrote the, the book because um, it's, it's what I do, right? So I felt like I needed to share this. I kind of had something inside of me that I wanted to get out. <laughs> and uh, I do this stuff on a day-by-day basis, and... I, I set up the book in um, in sections. So the first section really has to do with some of the stuff we talked about on this call, like the case for greener products, like why should we be paying attention to this, and all the type of things that I – regulatory drivers, market drivers, and, you know, the resource constriction drivers. And then I have um, over 25 different case studies of leading what leading companies are doing to uh, – to make greener products. So I cover, you know, companies in various different sectors. You know, I, I look, like I have a case study on GE. I've got a case study on Method. I've got a case study on Samsung, you know, Apple. So it covers a whole bunch of different um, companies. Like, how do they make greener products? Because you have to have the framework to do that. And then I cover the greener marketing aspects of it. So um, lots of case studies on appropriate green marketing. I have a section in there on greenwashing, ec- use of echo logos, and you know how to avoid greenwashing, for example. And um, in the end, I, I come up with the best practices for making and marketing greener products. Um, and it just gives you, I think, a lot of insight. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on, on the book. Um, it, it really is um, all about... Uh, trying to show the possibilities and sharing, you know, what others are doing in there. Of course, I have a st- case study in John- about Johnson & Johnson in there, too, so I share, like, our Earthwards approach in there. But I wrote it um, for several different audiences. You know, I-, I wrote it for colleagues who are in manufacturing, you know, g- goods company. Um, I wrote it for... Uh, for uh, governments to see what companies are doing and for even NGOs to see what companies are doing because they're always, you know, also important input. And then finally, um, for for academia, I, I my hope is really that the book will be used, and it is being used in several universities as a textbook um, for master level mainly is my focus, uh, master level courses on sustainability or on marketing. Um, so it's the only book I'm aware of that's on the market that combines both uh, design for the environment concepts and also marketing concepts. Uh, so I thought it was real important, going back to what I said earlier, you know, no such thing as a greener product. So how do you make products greener? And then what good is a greener product if you can't, if, if nobody knows about it? So the communication part of it is really key. So it's putting that all together, and that's really what it's, what it's all about. Great. Well, we're almost at the top of the hour. So, Simon or Rochelle, do you have a closing question? I think that uh, I've gotten all my uh, questions in there. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, um, Well, in that case, I'll get one more in, which is um, uh, as you look at the landscape in the competitive world that Johnson Johnson operates in, I mean, you, you mentioned a company like Method. Do you see sort of smaller, kind of more disruptive companies in this space? Is this 
is this kind of uh, uh, a competitive concern for uh, an established firm like Johnson Johnson that someone could sort of break through with some, you know, with some radical innovations that could be challenging, uh, particularly with this sort of sustainability focus? Well, that's always a concern. You know, I think for any company, that's why, you know, you have to always be trying to stay one step ahead. Um, so smaller companies obviously have an advantage when it comes to developing new um, approaches or new products. Um, so it is possible for, you know, someone to come in and to disrupt a category. I mean, that's what... Um, you know, the method example, for example, is, is, is one. But a lot of these smaller companies, I mean, they tend to attract niche, um, you know, markets. They're mm -hmm, not going to mm -hmm. like be that much of a threat that we are going to, like, use, lose tremendous market share. We haven't, at least traditionally. I mean, you know, maybe in certain categories here or there. That's the the beauty, I guess, of our companies, we're so vast, you know, we have so many different products and different types that we kind of are buffered against any one um, really making a, a major dent in, into us. But, you know, I'm not going to discount that. I think that it's always possible, and we have seen some examples of that, and there's probably examples where, you know, we, we have, um, I don't know if you could say because of sustainability, but where it's kind of um, put us out of um, a market in, in, you know, innovation by another company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm pieces of that. So right. there's, it, it could happen in, from a sustainability perspective. I, I think that is a possibility. Well, great. If you want to just leave us with some parting thoughts about, you know, uh, you've given us some big picture thoughts already, but any kind of last minute um, or last, last thoughts before we close out? Well, I would just say, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's been a privilege to um, to chat with you, and thank you for really great questions that you asked me. Time went by really fast. That's a good indicator that uh, <laughs> they were good questions. Um, but in uh, finally, I would guess the last word would be, you know, the whole idea of sustainability and uh, more sustainable products is something that's not going to go away. It's going to stay with us. Um, and it's something that the world has to pay more attention to. We've got to do things differently as a society, and we have to pay more attention to uh, um, how we bring products to market and trying to always be reducing the impacts of those products. So that's really, you know, my summary ending statement there, and um, I just hope that uh, everybody that called in uh, enjoyed the discussion. We certainly did, and you've been listening to Sustainable Business Fridays with the Bard MBA in Sustainability. Uh, we are signing off for this semester, but we'll be back next semester. We uh, hold these calls first and last Fridays of every month uh, at noon. Uh, if you'd like more information, please drop us an email at uh, mba at bard.edu. We can get on our, our mailing list. Uh, just want to thank Ali and Ian Uzi, excuse me, uh, who is a senior director at environmental health and safety, uh, as well as sustainability at Johnson Johnson for a great conversation today. Um, and also Rochelle March and Simon Fischweiker for, uh, offering a bunch of great questions. So goodbye everybody and uh, best wishes for the holiday season. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Al. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.